This past week, I don't know, Stephen Ambrose, I was checking out this book by Stephen Ambrose. He wrote a book called uh, Citizen Soldiers. How many of you guys have heard of this book? You've checked it out or anything like that? If you're into history, you're into war strategy, stuff like that, you're going to be all about it. It's what it is. It's essentially a story, a bunch of stories of the Allied victory in World War II. And so in this book, he tells the true story of a brigadier general named Norman Cota, uh, who came across this infantry unit that was pinned down by a bunch of Nazis just outside of this farmhouse that they were trying to take. So you can imagine the scene right here. The, the Nazis are inside this farmhouse. It's got a little higher ground. The Americans are coming around. There's this infantry group, and they're pinned down on the outside. The Nazis on the inside of this house. They're shooting all around there. And we've got this infantry unit that's kind of hiding behind these hills and uh, trying to take cover and protect themselves along the way. And so Coda goes, and he sees what's going on, and he's, he's heard about it. So he goes over, and he finds the captain of this infantry unit who's hunkered down behind this hill kind of for safety and everything. And he goes over to him, and he's like, Captain, what in the world are you guys doing? Like, why are you hiding here, and you're not taking that house? What, are you, what in the world are you guys doing? And the captain looks at him, and he goes, what do you mean, what are we doing? He's like, there's Nazis in that home. They're shooting on us. There's bullets flying all over the place. Like, what, are we, what do you mean, what are we doing? And he's like, why are you guys not taking this house? He's like, what are we, how are we supposed to take this house? And, and, uh, and Coda just gets really infuriated with this thing. He's like, you don't know what to do? He's like, what are you, son, this is war. This is war. Like, this is what we do. He's like, you don't know. To, he's like, I'll show you what to do. You guys cover me. Just fire up on the house. Me and my men, we're going to take over. I'll show you exactly what to do. So it's exactly what takes place. The captain and the infantry unit, they're around this house. They start shooting on the house and everything while Coda and his men, they raid. They just bum rush this house. They circle it around the back. And as Coda's getting closer to this house, he rips off two grenades from his chest. He's running in. He, he just lets out this giant scream. And he launches these grenades inside the window. And boom, boom. I mean, things are exploding inside, and the people that haven't passed away at that point in time, they're screaming. It's just mass chaos. They're running out the back of the door, and the rest of Coda's troops are around the back side ready to finish them off. And I'm not kidding you. Like, within a few minutes, this whole battle that they were kind of about to go into, like, the whole thing was just done in a couple minutes. And so they come back, and Coda comes, and he finds the captain. He's still out of breath, and he's like, Captain, did you see what I did? And he's like, yeah, Captain, I, yeah, I saw how it's done. He's like, no, 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 did you see? what I did. And he's like, yes, Captain, I see what you did. He goes, no, I want you to, did you actually see what took place? He goes, yes, I saw what I did. He goes, that's what you do when the enemy's taking over your house. You do whatever it takes. You kick down doors. You blow the thing up. That's what you do when the enemy's taking over your house. Church, this whole passage that Paul's about to get into right here is about what you have to do when the enemy's taking over your house. I mean, I hope you notice, like, there is violent, violent language that's taking place all throughout this chapter. I mean, he's saying things like, you've got to put to death your sin, whatever's taken over your house and belongs to your earthly nature. Things like sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires, and greed, and all these different kinds of things. I mean, it's just violent language. Verse 7, he's going to say, uh, you used to walk in those things. Like, that used to be part of your normal living and stuff like that. Now you've got to rid yourself totally and completely of it. In other words, like, you can't keep entertaining yourself by those things anymore. You got to put them to death. You got to you got to blow the whole thing up. You got to launch the grenades in the window and make sure that those things are totally and completely done once and for all. All kinds of things, right? Not not just sexual immorality and lust and things like that, but like all your anger, all the rage. He says, all the malice, all the slander, the filthy language, the bullying, the gossip, the lying on your lips. Even in light of the grace that you've received from the first couple of chapters. Even in light of the forgiveness that you know you already have for the penalty of those sins, even in light of all those things, you've got to blow those things up and make sure that those things are a thing of the past. And so, like, Paul's fired up in this passage. 
Like, I hope you don't miss that. Like, like, Paul is fired up in this passage. And the interesting thing about it is he gets really, really fired up about a lot of things you and I are very, very comfortable with. I mean, I, mean, I hope you notice his language. I mean, he's talking about filthy language here. Really? Like anger. Who, who doesn't get angry from time to time? Lust. <laughs> are you kidding? L- greed. It's like, a, it's like a national value of ours or something, right? I mean, anger, like lust, I mean, aren't these things normative in the world today? I mean, what's the big deal about those things? Why in the world should you and I put sin to death in light of the grace that we've received and the forgiveness we're certain to have in him? On top of that, the question I want to look at is like, how in the world do we do that? I mean, at the end of chapter 2, if you remember this from chapter 2, Paul's going to say uh, that things like asceticism and extreme discipline on the physical body, it's of no use when it comes to stopping the indulgences of the flesh. In other words, like, we've tried really, really hard to put an end to sin and sexual immorality and lust and adultery and, and rage and anger and malice and all these different kinds of things. We put the, we put the provisions in place. We got covenantized. We had the accountability partner, right? Like we wrote it down. We tried to do all these different, different things. We disciplined our bodies really, really well. And what he's saying is those things haven't even been helpful in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. So the question I just want to look at today is like, is if the house really is worth this fight, what's the strategy for blowing all that stuff up inside of our life? You know, why should we do battle against the sin inside of our life? And if we should, then how in the world do we go about fighting it? That's what Paul is going to help us with in this passage today. He begins the whole chapter with this assumption, and it's a very strong assumption that we need to understand. But he begins in verse 1, and he says, since then you've been raised in Jesus Christ. In other words, like, if then you've been raised in Christ. If you are, in fact, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've come to faith in him, if you have confessed that he alone is Lord, and if you have trusted in his perfect life and his sinless death as a substitute for you, if you've been a recipient of his grace, if you've been raised to life in him, Then, he says, you should set your mind on things above, and you should put sin to death in verse 5. That's essentially what he's saying. In other words, uh, none of what he's about to talk about applies unless you've been born again and you've been raised to newness of life found in him. That's the assumption that he's making here at the very beginning. There is a brand new reality about your life that is in place, which is going to help you be free of sin. There's a brand new perspective that has taken place, which is going to change the way that you think about sin and, and the way that you have power and ability to defeat the sin in your life and to be raised to new things in your life. You are a brand new creation, he talks about in 2 Corinthians. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And so as we get into this passage, it's important to understand we're not talking about self-help here. Like we're not talking about just, hey, how to break some bad habits in our life, change one behavior and say yes to a different behavior over here. We're not talking about self-help or anything like that. We're talking about how to walk in the newness of life, which he's already provided for us through Jesus Christ and by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so that's kind of what he begins. He, he continues in verse 3, and he says, For you have died with Jesus Christ, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. And so what we're seeing here at the very beginning is the first point he's making is really about our, our identity. And he's saying you're a new person. There's a brand new identity about you. And essentially what he's saying is that this lifestyle of unrepentant or a flippant attitude towards sin is very inconsistent with who you actually are. That's what he's saying. You're a new person. Your life is now hidden with Christ and God. You have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. You've been purchased and redeemed. You now have an indwelling Holy Spirit. You are, a now, you are now a very different person. And so a flippant attitude towards sin is completely inconsistent with who you actually are. Um, very similar to Harry and Meghan recently. If you guys have seen this in the news, um, 
you, you kind of seen they're, they're leaving the royal family, regardless of how you feel about it, whether you think it's right or wrong, good or bad, any of those other kinds of things. What they're doing is they're looking around at all the appearances. They're looking around at the different cameras, all the different parties, all the different expectations that are associated with being a part of a royal family. And they're sitting there going, you know what, like that's not who we are. They're saying this is not who we actually are. Now, you can debate that, of course, but like, they're looking at that and they're going, this is not who we are. We care about justice. We care about people. We care about having freedom to do the things we feel a conviction about doing. And so they're saying, like, that's not who we are. This is who we actually are. That lifestyle over there is incompatible with the things that I'm doing. Church is exactly what Paul's saying right here. Flippant attitude towards sin, unrepentant lifestyle of sin is incompatible with who you now are in Jesus Christ. And we know that because chapter 1, Paul's saying some very, very strong, important things about who we now are and what God has done for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, he's going to say, he has delivered you from the domain of darkness and he has transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. In other words, there is a transfer that has taken place in Christ. We used to live in the domain of darkness, ignorant to the things of God, ignorant to his saving grace, ignorant to what holiness and what it looks like to follow him. We used to live in the domain of darkness. Now we've been transferred out of that thing and brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. Verse 20, he's going to say, he has made peace for you by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the blood of the cross. And so if God has made peace for us through the blood of Jesus Christ, how in the world can you and I walk in malice and anger and disunity and divisiveness and all these different kinds of things. It's inconsistent with what he's done and it's inconsistent with who you actually are. Verse 22, he has reconciled you so that you can be called holy and blameless before him. In other words, what he's done is he's brought you back into the fold. He's covered you by the blood of the lamb, what we sing about, which seems really, really weird. However, he has covered you in the blood of the lamb in order to present you holy and blameless before him. And so if God looks at you covered in the blood of the lamb, standing in this new identity in him, and he considers you and I holy and blameless before him, how in the world can you and I continue to go and walk in things like sexual immorality and lust and anger and malice and all these other kinds of things right here? Like that's what he's saying. The whole thing is completely inconsistent. And so the implication of what he's saying right here, it really is twofold. If you do continue to live in unrepentant sin or you have a flippant attitude towards sin in your life, and that's kind of become the new norm for you, then it means one of two things. Number one, it could mean that you're just really, really comfortable with the lifestyle of hypocrisy. Or the things you thought actually took place didn't really take place. It's what Jesus is talking about, this frightening passage in Matthew chapter 7, where he talks about two different kinds of trees. There's a, there's a good tree, there's a bad tree. One tree produces good fruit, the other tree produces bad fruit. And you remember this frightening, this, this frightening passage, but he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons and, and in your name perform many miracles? In other words, didn't we do a whole lot of church stuff? Didn't we do a whole lot of religious activity? Didn't we have a lot of peripheral connection to the things of God and to Jesus and all these different kinds of things? Didn't we do different things that were really, really great? And Jesus just looks at him and he says this. He says, I'm going to tell you plainly, I never knew you. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And so what's he saying right there? Is he saying that you're actually saved by the things that you do? No. All he's saying is that the, all he's saying is that the things you do are a reflection of who you really are. The things that you do are a reflection of what's truly taking place inside of you. The things that you do are a reflection of who you really are. Which is exactly why this is such a big deal for believers to take seriously the things of God and to take seriously the sin in their life. 
Church, like if your identity is found in Jesus Christ, he has done all those different things for you, your life is now a reflection of his holy image, then how in the world are people going to understand that sin leads to death unless they see you take seriously the sin in your own life? How in the world are are they going to be able to understand what holiness actually is if they don't see glimpses of it, broken, broken glimpses of it from time to time in our lives in this pursuit of following Jesus Christ who happens to be a holy God in and of himself? How in the world are they going to know the depths of God's love for us upon the cross if they've got no idea why he even had to be there to begin with? I'm sure that's what he's talking about. Like people are going to see you long before they ever see Jesus. And so you and I have to be very, very clear and very, very certain that our lives are somewhat consistent with who we actually now are in Jesus Christ. That's exactly what Paul's saying right here. So the first place he begins is just a matter of identity. And it may or may not be very compelling to you at this point in time, but that's who you are. And, and he's saying if you don't want to be hypocritical, you want to walk in the newness of life, which he's already provided for you in this, then that's not consistent with this flippant attitude towards sin. He continues in verse 6 with another one when he says, now on account of these things, and he's referencing all the different sins that he's already listed right there, anger, malice, wrath, all these different things. On account of these things, he says, the wrath of God is coming. Now, I think that's a very fascinating statement to make right there, probably especially in light of how we think about wrath and love today, because I believe that one of the most plausible arguments that you and I are believing today is that somehow love is incompatible with anger and wrath. We talked about plausible arguments last week. If you were here, you remember this? Plausible arguments are those arguments that sound like they're right. They sound good. They sound true. It doesn't matter if they are or not. It just sounds like they could possibly be right. I believe this is one of the most plausible, this is one of the most easily bought into plausible arguments that we are believing today. This, this idea that somehow a good and loving and holy God, like that's incompatible, incompatible with wrath and anger or anything like that. Um, you hear this talk all the time, right? Uh, my God would never be angry at that. My God would never have a problem with that expression of love. My God would never have a problem with that behavior over here, this, that, or the other, whatever it may be. There's this idea that somehow love is incompatible with anger or wrath, never mind the fact that we see this play out every single day. Like we see how, uh, if you've ever noticed this, if you ever noticed how some of the people that you love the most in the world simultaneously are able to bring you more joy and more satisfaction and more anger in your life than anyone else in the world. Anybody ever notice this? Like I got like amens in the first service. I guess there's a lot of fights on the way to church or something. But like, did you guys do that or anything? Like you're like, I don't know why I'm so angry at you. I wouldn't care if Bob down the street did that. I care that you did that, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like, I, you've noticed this, right? Like they can simultaneously bring you more joy, more satisfaction, and more anger and frustration than anyone else in the world, right? Like, like that's how it always works. I mean, the, the reality is if you were to break into my garage, and you were to steal a broom of mine and break it and then leave it on my driveway or something like that, like it would annoy me. Like it, it'd be, it would annoy me. I'd probably be a little bit upset, maybe a tiny bit. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm okay because I'm, I'm not that attached to a broom. If you were to break into my house and you were to do that to my wife, you were to do that to my kid, I'm telling you, like game on. Like it's bad news. Like pastor ain't pastor anymore, right? <laughs> I got, I got just, uh, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like, like you touch my family, you touch the people that I love, it's all, it's all over with. I remember when Caleb started up kindergarten, that was my big prayer for Kat. I was like, Lord, don't let her do anything that's going to get her arrested. <laughs> right? Like, you know what I'm talking about? 
Like there's this kid that came out of the playground, like grabbed him by the neck and said some terrible things. Day one, and I was like, I was like, oh Lord, I need your Holy Spirit right now. Don't let her go. Like mama bear, papa bear, we're about to go crazy on some folks and like bad things are gonna happen. Like that's what you do, right? Like love is not incompatible with anger. Because of love, we become angry at the things that hurt the people that we love, the things that become destructive to the people that we love. So, like, that's what we're talking about. The greater the love you have for someone, the greater the opportunity for anger. The more I love someone, the more I care about the things that are going to ultimately destroy them. And so here it is, church. Like, even though the wrath of God against our sin has been totally and completely satisfied through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, he has made peace, all the things we've talked about in the first couple of chapters. He's a propitiation, right? He is, his wrath against our sin is satisfied, even though those things are true. Because he is still love. Because he still interacts with us in a loving way on a daily basis, on a minute-by-minute basis, you better believe he's going to intervene when it comes to things like sexual immorality and impurity and lust and evil desires and greed and anger and malice and on and on and on. Because here it is, church, if he chooses not to do so, then the thing that he understands, which none of us do, is that those things will well up inside of us and it will ultimately kill and consume us and destroy us from the inside out. That's what he understands, which you and I have a hard time understanding. Because you and I look around at the world around us and we say, you know what, this is what's normative. This is what's easy. This is what my friends do. This is what my family's always done. This has become the, the normal thing on our behavior. And so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And what he's saying here is that like all of those things, they matter a whole lot because they well up inside of you. They consume your heart. They harden you to the things of God. It's why the author of Hebrews is going to say, let us encourage one another. I say, repeat this to you over and over again all, the, all my time during, here at the church. Let us encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you are going to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Church, like, that's what it does. It's not so much that your sin hardens God towards you to the point that he says, oh, my gosh, you've blown it again. I'm running away. We can have no relationship. The reality of our sin is that it hardens us from the inside and numbs us to the things of God. We are the ones who run away, want nothing to do with him. It's exactly why so many of us go through these seasons, which you may possibly be in right now. You know what I'm talking about? Like there was a time in your life where you woke up in the morning and you could not wait to read the word of God, to spend time in prayer, to go serve the church, to go share your faith, whatever it may be. Like maybe that was a reality. There was a time you hungered for the things of God and you may be in this season where you're sitting there kind of going, you know what? I'm not feeling it a whole lot anymore. Like it's hard to get up and to read my word. I don't want to read my word, the word of God anymore. I don't want to pray much anymore. Like, what's going on, church? There's a numbing effect of the sin in our life, and if not taken care of, it will numb you to the things of God to the point where you sit there and say, you know what, I don't need him anymore, and I'm going to run, and I'm going to go do my own thing over there. I was reading this article this past week on uh, the decline of evangelism in the church today. It was a horrific article that made me weep, and, uh, but it was essentially just talking about how Christians today, they don't engage in evangelism anymore. And uh, we kind of had these attitudes that says, you know what, that's what we did in the 80s. We've graduated past that. Now it's all social justice and things like that. That's the, real, that's the real important thing, which does matter, social justice and justice initiatives and stuff. And as much as they are biblical, they are a part of the evangelistic strategy, which makes a whole lot of sense. They are not the end goal. And so the entire article is just talking about how uh, there is a decline in, of evangelism in the church today. You want to know why? Talked about number one, we don't, it talks about number one that there is not really a compassion for lost people anymore. We've lost our compassion, probably because we don't believe that anyone's lost anymore. 
uh, that there is no judgment in the end. There is no wrath of God. There, there's only an appeased thing that's always satisfied and happy all the time. So there is no wrath, therefore there is no compassion for anyone else because there is no definition of lost. But then number two, uh, most of us don't believe that we live lives that are worthy of being a testimony of Jesus. And so the reason that I stay home and I don't share my faith with anybody is because who in the world am I to share my faith? I don't have it all figured out. Like my life is inconsistent with the thing I would be telling that person to follow, right? And so we live in this condemnation and we live in this shame that keeps us sidelined at home that says, you know what, who in the world am I to say anything? My life isn't consistent. My life isn't good enough, right? And it's keeping you sidelined all the time. Church, what is that? It's the numbing effect of sin upon our heart that says, hey, there is no grace for me right now. It's the numbing impact that says, you know what, this thing that I used to embrace, I'm not going to embrace it anymore. That was a thing for the 80s, the 90s, tracks and things like that, irrelevant anymore. It's this numbing impact that comes inside your soul and hardens you to the things of God to the point that you stiff-armed him and now you were shocked by this idea that, hey, you know what, I'm not feeling close to him very much anymore. Like that's the impact of sin. I was listening to this missionary uh, talk on a podcast this past week. He was telling this fascinating story, but essentially he was a missionary in South America. He traveled all over the place quite a bit. Uh, he didn't stay in one place. He was kind of a traveling evangelist. But he says uh, in all of his travels throughout South America, he came across this one utopian community, he called it. And I fell in love with this community. It was a very, very small community. There was, they had no advancements in technology, only a couple hundred people in the whole thing. But he goes, the entire, the entire community were believers. Evidently somebody had come through a long time ago shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. They all came to faith. And he goes, this, this community was beautiful. And he goes, every time I'm traveling through, like, they would come and minister to me. Like, so, like, they had no electricity. They didn't have running water. They didn't have cell phones, TVs, or any of that kind of stuff. But they would just come, and they would pray over me. They would love on me. I mean, I left that place feeling filled. And so he goes, well, a few years back, I went and visited that community again. And come to find out, like, all the cell phone companies have moved into the place. I don't know if you've ever seen this in a third world country where people are living in, in uh, cardboard boxes, but there's a satellite on top of the cardboard box, and you've got a cell phone, and you've got a smartphone and stuff like that. Like that's, what that's what happens. And so they've moved into the neighborhood. They brought in all these technological advancements and things like that. And he goes, I'm not kidding you. Three years later, that community experienced the very first murder they've ever experienced. They had the very first divorce inside the home, and they had the very first case of domestic violence ever reported in this community. Church, I'm telling you, like, it's, it's, not, it's not harmless. The things that we feed on, they, like our affections, the things that we feel like they feed on us over and over and over again, like it's not harmless. It's not coincidental. The church attendance in that community began to quickly, quickly decline. Why? That's the, in, that's the, the dominating nature of sin in our life. It numbs you to the things of God. You become, com, you, you become disinterested in the things of God, and you run really, really, really far from him, church. Like Jesus is going to say in Luke chapter 6, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil man brings evil things that brought, brought out of the evil that's stored up in his heart. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. In other words, like there is no such thing as silent, um, as silent and innocent sin going on. Everything that is beginning to take place in here will eventually make its way out there in some form or fashion. Like, like Cain's coveting in Genesis chapter 4. It's not harmless, church. It's not harmless. He's coveting what his brother had. He's coveting these other, uh, these other things. It's making him hard and angry to the things of God. That hardness has turned into distance and to dissatisfaction with his brother. That dissatisfaction leads to jealousy. That jealousy led to anger and slander and malice and violence. And that eventually leads to him taking his brother's life. 
And granted, hear me, like, there's a lot of steps that go from, hey, I'm feeling jealous in here towards taking someone else's life. Nevertheless, everything that happens on this end of the spectrum first begins in here. Church, what's happening in here is not innocent. What's happening in here, it matters. It's not harmless. It's not private. It's not inconsequential. Everything that is taking place in here, it matters because it works its way out of you. Not only ruining your relationship with God and creating distance between you and him, but coming out and hurting people that you love. Church, even the lust that's going on in your heart. The, 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 private, the, the private meetings with your computer in the middle of the night, like the lust that's going on right there is not harmless. It's not innocent. It keeps building and it creates hardness in here and it keeps building and building and building and spiraling out of control to the point that you, you're dissatisfied with the real thing at home. And then that dissatisfaction creates, uh, it creates all kinds of other boundaries, di- distance and stuff like that at home. Um, there's dissatisfaction and, and it rips apart things back there. I mean, when non-Christian scientists, I keep coming back to this over and over again, when non-Christian scientists are saying the exact same things that God has been saying from the very beginning, it's time to pay attention, right? I mean, Hooked, this is a book, uh, non-Christian scientists, they say the individual who goes from sex partner to sex partner, even in your mind, right, even if it's just in your mind, is causing the brain to mold in such a way that eventually accepts that sexual pattern is normal, which damages your ability to bond to another person in a committed relationship. Church, like, is it any wonder that monogamy is hard for us today? We've never spent any time training for monogamy. We've, only, we've, only, we've never been spent any time training for monogamy. Like, why are, we, why are we shocked by that? We're not satisfied by that anymore. Uh, that's not shocking. I mean, it goes on and talks about how porn addiction is the thing that's leading to more ED in 20-year-old men than anything else. Again, I'm not a doctor, but like, that shouldn't be happening in 20-year-old men. Right? I mean, it, it goes on. Men and women also. They talk about how it's leading to all kinds of things. ADHD, social depression, probably because of the comparison trap will always, always, always kill you. It's not good. Depression, concentration problems, OCD. Church, it's not harmless. It's not harmless. Like when non-Christian scientists say the same thing, we've got to be paying attention here. That's why Paul's saying kill it, church. Kill it. Make sure that it's dead. Like launch the grenades in the home. Make sure that it's blown up and then has no place in your life today. Make sure that you don't have flippant attitude towards the sin in your life. Make sure that you don't keep going in unrepentant sin and never take it seriously in your life before. I love how John Owen says this. He says, uh, the famous Puritan commentator, he says, you must always, always, always be killing sin or it'll be killing you. You must always be killing sin or it'll be killing you. Church, that's exactly what Paul's saying right here. You've got to put it to death. You've got to make sure that it's out. You've got to rid yourself of these things. You've got to make it flee. And I'll just say, like, right, for some of us, it's exactly what you've got to hear today, that thing that you've been holding on to, that thing that you thought was no big deal, that thing that you thought, hey, it's not hurting anybody. It's just me and the computer. It's just me and this thing over here. It's all private. Like for some of you, it's exactly what you need to be hearing today. That thing will well up and harden you in the inside and it'll numb you to the things of God and potentially come out and do some serious damage to the people that you love. So Paul just sits there and pleads with us. He says, kill it, put it to death. Like it's not a friend of yours. It's, it's, it's sitting in your home and it's shooting at you. Like you're taking bullets. And so he continues and he says, this is how you blow the thing up. And he continues in verse three, or chapter 3, verse 1, but he very, very simply says this. He says, set your heart on things above. Where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. 
In other words, like don't just, don't just be looking at the things around you that you're not supposed to be doing. In other words, the way to defeat the sins in your life, the way to defeat the strongholds is by, is by, is, is by shifting your, your, your perspective, looking up, not just looking at the things that are behind you that you're trying to leave behind. Don't just look at the, at the social norms that are around you. Don't look at what's normative and what's going on around you, but look up. Look at the, the things of God. Set your mind on things above. And it's not just set your mind and think about these things, but let your heart go there too. Like there's a difference between thinking about certain things and then letting your heart and your affections be molded according to the way that you're thinking as well. And he's saying let your, the full integration of how God has wired you, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, let all of those things be fixated on the God above who has taken care of all these things for you. Verse 12, he's going to continue and he's going to say, put on then, church, as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And so what he's saying is here is that the spiritual life, this, this, this life of, uh, of sanctification, becoming more and more in the image of God, right? This, this indwelling work of the Holy Spirit where he refines you and turns you into his image. Like there's a putting off that takes place and there's a putting on that needs to be taking place at the exact same time. In other words, the culmination of a successful Christian life is not just the culmination of what you've been able to say no to. Contrary to how a lot of people believe today, it is not just, hey, I don't watch bad movies, uh, I don't cuss anymore, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't sleep around, I don't do all these other things. If that were the definition of godliness, your dog would be the most godly person in the room, right? <laughs> Assuming they're neutered. But anyway, um, like, like, that's what he's saying. Like, it's more than the culmination of the things that you don't do. He's saying at the same time that you put off these things over here, you're saying yes to things over here. You're setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your heart on the things of God. And you're putting on things like love and joy and peace and patience, compassion, meekness, and all these different kinds of things over here. And there's a putting off and a putting on. It's kind of like gardening in a lot of ways. If you've ever done gardening lately, like you, you got to first come and you got to till the soil. You got to get rid of all the weeds that are there. But no one's satisfied just looking at it like a bed full of dirt. You come alongside there and then eventually you got to replant with fresh flowers and things like that. It's kind of the same thing with a successful marriage. Like a successful marriage is more than just the things that you say no to. It's all the things that you're also saying yes to at the exact same time. I mean, can you imagine if we come home from work and, and I was like, babe, today's awesome. Our marriage is awesome. A happy anniversary, things like that. And like, I didn't cheat on you once today. I didn't cheat on you once. I didn't cuss you out once. Uh, you know, I wasn't mean. I wasn't hurtful. I wasn't abusive. I wasn't any of these other things. And she'd be like, that's awesome. Way to go. But um, there's a little bit more to a successful marriage than that. All right, like that's, that's what he's talking about right here. So what the Puritans called the expulsive power of a greater affection. Okay, and so they talk about it like this, and they say the way that you remove a lesser affection is by replacing it with something that's greater. It's the expulsive power of a greater affection. The way that you replace a lesser affection is by, or the way to remove a lesser affection is by replacing it with something that's greater. And I, I promise you, Joe, like we see this principle in play all the time. And I've joked about it a hundred times, but it's the only reason I've ever been able to explain why I've seen Pride and Prejudice probably 83,000 times in my life. Right? There's, a, there's a new affection that's in place. Right? There's a greater affection that's in place. It's the only way to explain. I've seen Notebook, I think, 972 times and I go over and over and over again. It's the only reason I'm considering seeing Little Women today. Right? Like, there's a greater affection that's in place right here. Right? Like, there's this understanding that, that because of my love for my spouse, I'm going to do things for her and with her that I probably wouldn't otherwise do. And she would do the exact same things. Like we would, 
I've always told you guys I'm a huge Florida Gator fan. Grew up cheering for the Gators. There's a Gator bar here in town. We used to go out there and go watch some of the Florida Gator football games. Kat would bring her books with her at seminary. And she'd be like sitting at the table and stuff just reading these books. She could care less about the books and stuff. And I'm cheering and going nuts there. Why? It's only because she loves me. Like she would never, ever, ever, ever be there. There is a greater affection that is in play. And what he's getting at here is that there, not only is there a greater affection that's in play, but the longer you come and you feed those affections with one another, serving one another, being for one another, those affections continue to grow stronger and you grow together even more. Church, it's exactly what he's talking about right here. Yeah, there is a bunch of affections that are in play and you and I need to make sure that we are feeding the right affections. Church, all the different things that he's talking about right back then, the lust of the flesh, Right, the, the, the boastful pride of life, the evil desires, the coveting, the greed, the anger, the malice, the envy, like all those things need to feed in order to thrive. They need time. They need secrecy. They need food. They need effort. They need time and all those different things to grow. Like all those things have to grow. And I promise you, church, it's why every single day, like the enemy does his best to force feed those affections with a fire hose. I mean, we've got to be aware that like every single day, we are drinking from a fire hose, uh, feeding those affections every single day. Tomorrow, you're going to wake up, and uh, if it's a normal day, we're going to receive anywhere between 3,000 and 5,000 advertising messages in any given day. We're talking about like internet ads, commercials, cars driving by, t-shirts, the entire thing. We're talking about targeted messages, all telling you the exact same thing. No matter how much you have, no matter what it may be, you still not, do not have enough. You know what the mode is going to be to get you? They're appealing to this innate sense of greed inside all of us that says, no matter what I have, I still want more. I want to keep climbing. I want to keep climbing. I want more. Satisfaction isn't a good virtue I need to rest in. I always want more and more. You know how else they're going to do it? Sex sells, doesn't it? Sex sells, doesn't it? I mean, I was in the line at the grocery store this past week, and I saw this article. It was, it was titled, uh, Why Sex Sells. Right? So it's naturally, I looked at that. I was like, uh, I need to read this article. You know what the first line is? Sex still sells. Right? Shocker, right? We didn't know that. That's the conclusion of new research that finds ads featuring sex are on the rise. People are hardwired to notice sexually relevant information, and so ads with sexual content, they continue to get noticed. The article continued to go on and it says, this upward trend in erotic ads is a reflection of society. It takes more explicitness to grab our attention and excite us than ever before. In the early 1900s, exposed arms and ankles of female models generated the same level of excitement as partially nude models do today. We can see during our lifetime the changes in sexually explicit content on television, movies, books, and other forms of media beyond just, just advertising. Church, like I'm telling you, he is feeding our affections with a fire hose every single day. Every single day we are feeding and it is coming in and it is having an impact. Do we think that it's just neutral? I mean, do we think that it's having no impact whatsoever on the things of God, our affection for him, our ability to walk in love, joy, peace, patience, to be free of the things of our old and to be able to say yes to him? I mean, do we think that it's all just negligible, that it's no big deal? I mean, church, we're feeding every single day from a fire hose. And what Paul is saying right here is you've got to make sure that you're feeding from the right hose. You've got to make sure that you're feeding the right affections in your life. And so just very, very simply says, church, be a people that set your mind on things above. Set your heart on the things that are above. Fixate totally and completely on him. Don't just look at the things that are around you. Don't fixate on what's in front of you every single day. 
Don't fixate on how you grew up and what was normative over there or what's normative at work or what's normative with your friends. Fixate upon Jesus, his holiness, his grace, his love, everything that he's done for you in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then be free of the sin in your life as it quickly dissipates over time. I love the way that the navigators illustrate this. They are a, a discipleship ministry that's been around for a long time. Leo Busher in our men's group this past week, he, uh, he brought me onto it. And uh, he reminded me of this illustration that was, it was uh, what I was going to be talking about. And this one was just so much better. And um, I looked back at it this past week. But they used the word hand illustration in order to talk about the five different ways that we can absorb God's word into our heart and into our mind every single day. And I love this illustration if you've ever seen it before, but it essentially talks about how we've got to be a people that hear the word of God, that read the word of God, that study the word of God, that memorize it, and that meditate, meditate upon it also. But these are the different five different inputs in, into how God's word gets into our heart, gets into our mind, how we fixate totally and completely upon him and meditate, set our hearts and minds on, on the things that are above. But it essentially says, like, we can't just, we, we, we've got to be people that hear the word of God. And when we talk about hearing the word of God, we've got to come to biblical, gospel-oriented preaching. You've got to come around it with different teachers, different preachers, different small group leaders in your life. You've got to come around and you've got to sit, sit there and you've got to listen to the word of God read over your life. I'll tell you this, one of my favorite disciplines is I just, I love listening to podcasts. Um, and I'm a podcast junkie. I'll listen to these sermons and stuff all the time. And I love surrendering to it. I used to do it in my car all the time, just kind of set it up. Now I live... 30 seconds from work, so that's not very efficient anymore, but um, used to do it in the gym, and it's a whole different other set of problems right now, but, um, <laughs> but I love listening to these podcasts, and I listen to them all the time. Um, I listen to some of the greats. Tony Evans is a favorite of mine. I listen to Tony all day long. I'll tell you his daughter. I'll, honestly, I can say the entire Evans family uh, will just bring the word, and they've always been a, just an incredible joy to my life. Priscilla Shire, his daughter, I believe is one of the best preachers in all of Dallas. Most of us have never heard or anything like that, and just an unbelievable preacher of God's word. Gladly to listen to those all day long. J.D. Greer, Matt Chandler, um, Eric Mason up north, uh, Tim Keller, Joel Osteen. Um, I'm just kidding about the last one. Just want to see if you're paying. <laughs> just want to see if you're paying attention there. So. Uh, uh, I'll tell you this, like when I'm not in the pulpit here, I'll, I'll go to, around to other churches. I love sitting in other churches and just sitting under the preaching of God's word. Like we need to listen to it. We need to learn how, what God is doing through other people and the different ways that he is seeing it. And like every single time it's refreshing and it's challenging as God takes his word through the indwelling Holy Spirit and brings a challenge there that I never would have had in and of myself. Like we've got to be people that regularly submit to just hearing God's word preached, taught, and just read over us all the time. Some of you guys I know are doing Bible reading plans through your, through your podcast, and it's an excellent way to just bring input, take, take in the word of God. We've got to be people not just hear it, but we've got to be people that read it, church. Like we've got to be people that read it for ourselves. You cannot be content to just take my word for it or to take Matt Chandler's word for it, or Tim Keller, or Priscilla Shire, or whoever it may be. We can't be content to just take your word for it. We've got to taste and see that the Lord is good for ourselves. Like, we've got to dive in. We've got to read it for ourselves. One of my favorite illustrations of this is from my other favorite preacher in the world is Cat Armstrong. Um, back in college, I love this one. She gave, did this one to a student ministry group, and uh, I've always wanted to do it here. I, don't, I think I'd get fired immediately if I did it. But, um, but she was just talking about it. We've got to be people that taste and see that the Lord is good. And so she comes in there and is just preaching through this, and a kid comes up there, and he's chewing up all these donuts, and he's eating all these donuts on the stage, and everybody's just watching him eat it, and then he spits it out on a plate. 
and he builds up this, this, this pile of just chewed up donut right there. There's another kid that comes up, and she's preaching through it and stuff, and, and this kid just comes up with a fork and knife and just starts spooning it and eating it right there. Like, it's just horrid. Like, that's the thing you can only do with junior hires and high schoolers, right? <laughs> like, everybody's, sorry, everybody's going to judge you right now, but, um, but I mean, it was, and, she, and, and she's like, look, you've got to taste and see that the Lord is good for yourself. Like, like, like taking my word for it is like eating pre-chewed food. Like, you can live off of that. It's still, you're still going to survive on it. It's still food, and it's still going to be relatively, relatively decent and stuff like that. But I promise you, it is nothing compared to getting into the Word of God, eating it for yourself, chewing it up for yourself, digesting it for yourself, and receiving firsthand from the Lord. Church, we can't just hear God's Word. We've got to read it for ourselves. We've got to be students of the Word. We've got to study it. I'll tell you, like, my, my, my relationship with the Lord came alive when I started reading it and understanding that the Word of God is living and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It is piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both body and marrow. Like, I, we understand that the Word of God is alive. And as you read it and you understand it, you're going to see how things connect from one book to another and why everything's taking place. The continuity of the big picture story that's going on. And you're going to see that God is faithful in the beginning and he's faithful in the end. And it is going to take on new life as you dive in and you begin to study the depths of God's word. Church, you've got to memorize God's word. You can't just hear it. You can't just read it. You can't just study it and stuff. You've got to memorize it so that it's ready to be applied and it's useful in the moment. How many of you sat there before and you've heard the accuser's voice in your head? Shame is ripping you apart. He's destroying you from the inside. And in that moment, you need to cling to there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. Church, you have to know God's word. It has to be right there on your heart. It has to be on the tip of your tongue. It has to be ready for you to use, not only in those moments of accusation, but also in those moments of ministry when you've got a hurting brother or sister or friend or parent, and they need to hear a word from you about what's actually true, and the word of God needs to be applied to their life too. Church, you've got to memorize it. It's got to be ready right there all the time. I mean, Paul's going to say, as God's chosen people, he's going to even throw this in there. He's going to remember this. He's going to say, put on these things, compassion, kindness, all these different things. Remember that you're God's chosen people. You are holy and beloved. You've got to remember that. That is who you are in Christ Jesus if you were going to walk in victory today. Church, you can't just hear it. You can't just read it. You can't just study it. You can't just memorize it. You've got to be men and women that are meditating upon the truth of God's word. Meaning you don't just read it and then move on. You don't just take off and take a little Instagram, little little nugget for the day, that day, and you take off. You sit there and you meditate upon the truths of God's word. Lord, you're telling me to put on compassion. And I'm not going to move past that so quickly. Father, would you show me what it looks like to put on compassion? Would you, by your Holy Spirit, create this heart of me that is full of compassion just like you are, God? That's who I am. My life is found in you. Would you come and produce your life in me? And you sit on these verses and you just sit there and you don't move so quickly and say, hey, I got to knock out five chapters today to keep in touch with my plan. I'm going to sit there. I'm going to meditate upon this particular word so that it can take roots inside of me and so that he can dwell up in me and his life can be produced in me. Father, what does it look like for me to walk in gentleness and patience as a man in a culture that does not value those words and those qualities in men today? Father, I need you to come and to teach me these things, and you just meditate on it day in and day out. Church, I'm telling you, like, there's victory in Christ. There's victory in Christ. But it doesn't come after by, by just dwelling upon the things I'm trying to get rid of. 
It doesn't come by saying, hey, this lust or this anger, this malice, like that's the thing that I'm obsessing on and I'm dwelling on. It comes when we, when we say, Lord, here it is. These things I'm laying down at your feet, God, and I'm fixating totally and completely fully upon you. This past week, I was refreshing upon an old journal of mine. I would write out a lot of prayers, and it was kind of fun to go back to the very beginning and um, to read some entries that I was writing about 18 years ago. And to be able to see that, you know, the same things, the things that I was working on back then that were heavy on my heart, they're things that God just set me free of over time. And we would just come and I'd just write these things down and just, I'm looking back on it 20 years. Have you guys ever done this before? You look back and say, I'm not, by God's grace, the same person I am today. I'm not the same person I am today as I was 20 years ago back then. Church, that's what happens when we fixate upon Jesus. And we say, Lord, here are the things in my life that are strongholds in my life. God, would you take them? Would you release them? Would you set me free from them? But, Father, my affection, my attention is totally and completely upon you. I'm telling you, church, there's victory in him. And you will walk in the fullness of life. If you will just come and take those grenades off your chest, throw them in that house. Because that's what you have to do when the enemy's come and taken over. You blow the thing up. And you walk in the freedom that he's called you to walk in. I invite you to pray with me. Father.